Turn. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. It's been said in the scriptures that children and the majority of children are a blessing from the Lord, and he who has a quiver full is truly blessed. But what happens when they become teenagers? Are they still truly a blessing? Well, that's the question before us here today on Viewpoint, and what do we do about this situation? A lot of us have talked about the terrible twos and the frightening fours, but how about the terrifying teens? So today on Viewpoint, we're going to be dealing with those terrifying teens because teens are on the national board right now. In fact, right right now in front of me is a report from thefederalist.com Trained to hate themselves, one in three teen girls considers suicide. A new survey from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention revealed a serious spike in depression among teenage girls. More than 57% report feeling persistently sad or hopeless. Nearly one in three, 30%, has actually considered suicide. So, What's troubling about this report is how it it runs counter, it seems, to today's conventional wisdom. After all, uh, doesn't our society allegedly celebrate women more than ever before and offer abundant opportunities to girls except for boys who want to pretend to be girls? And women are doing much better than men in some crucial areas, outnumbering them at colleges and in the workplace. It's amazing. So what is going on? Why is it that our young ladies are so unhappy? And then why is it that our young men are falling behind? Report after report after report talks about how our teenagers are falling behind. Young men falling behind. What is going on? Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to be talking about that and also about our relationships within our families to these young humans called teenagers. A special guest is joining us here. We haven't heard from her before. Katie Weirig, uh, who is joining us, she has a book, Becoming a Teen Parenting Machine. Actually, the word mean occurs on the front of her book, crossed out with a red X, Becoming a mean, well, not mean, but teen parenting machine, a step-by-step guide to transform your relationship with your teenager. Well, uh, Katie, it's so good to have you on the program from Utah. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Chuck. Now, what is it that uh, brought you about to write a book about the teens? So many want to write a book about uh, young children. Uh, that seems to be more popular uh, because teens uh, are seemingly somewhat terrifying to a lot of people. Well, you know, they are terrifying. And um, just to give you a little background about myself, which will kind of give you some context as to how this all came about. So I am a mother of five. And um, and so this is me right in the middle of the trenches of these parenting. Three of my children are in their teenage years right now. <laughs> and, and so we are, we are feeling it. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. House. You know what I'm hearing from you, uh, Katie, is that you probably are experiencing the first uh, half of the tribulation then. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So my professional experience is um, a family and mental health wellness coach. I have advanced degrees in neuroscience and psychology. And I would say the majority of what I get um, approached about by parents is the teen years. There is so much resources out there for toddlers and babies. And the toddlers and babies sometimes are a little bit easier to love because they're forgiving. They're cute. They come up and snuggle us. Teens, having the mean and crossed out is very intentional because there are times where we are actually scared of our teenage children. They, they can seem a little volatile and uh, for those of us that really value peace in the home and value a, ho- a positive home life, it can feel a little scary during the teen years. Um, I had the unique opportunity during my formative years, starting about 12 years old, I was a regular on, um, I did a lot of film work, and I was a regular on the WB, did a lot of Disney Channel featured films, did a mm. lot of commercials, and I spent a lot of time in the film industry and then went on to become um work, do the miss america pageant and during that time like i appreciate what you said about how hard it is for girls because you're right there are a lot of opportunities that are available to women but it doesn't i don't know if it's necessarily making our teenage girls happier or healthier and um i saw this very firsthand as a girl you know trying out the film industry as a very impressionable um, young woman and seeing the challenges that we were we were facing and what we were being told by those outside of our homes and unfortunately sometimes for some in their homes mm-hmm. and I wanted to change that narrative I wanted to pull back the power back to the family the nuclear family is under attack and no question um, when we, when we strengthen our homes when we strengthen what goes on in our four walls of our homes that's when the changes in society begins to be made. And I am privileged to be able to be a voice for positive parenting, specifically for these teenagers who are at a critical developmental point in their life, who need love, acceptance, empathy, security, as much or as more as any other time in their lives. Well, that's for sure. Now, you you have uh, five kids, and uh, you had them all within seven years uh, that must have been terrifying in and of itself. <laughs> it was terrifying. And, you know, it was interesting. I, uh, we laugh about how quickly we had our children because my husband is an attorney like yourself, Chuck. And we were young and dumb. We say we were both getting our graduate degrees and we felt very inspired by the Lord to have children quickly. And it w- didn't make a lot of sense at the time. And we had We had all these kids, and then surprisingly, when I was in my early 30s, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and after all my treatments, we're told that we wouldn't be able to have any more children. I never would have imagined in my early 30s, right in the the brink of my childbearing years, that I would be told that we would have to end our our family um, progression. And so we both felt like me and my husband that the Lord had directed us to have our children really close together. There are a lot of challenges with that, but I am so blessed to have five children, and I know it's because the Lord saw something I didn't see and knew that I needed to, you know, listen to Him and not. I didn't know what was coming, and now that I know that, I'm so grateful we were able to get our five children here safely before my diagnosis. Well, I'm sure that uh, you have a lot of things to share with us, and uh, having gone through your book pretty carefully, uh, I, I know that to be true. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that you've talked about is something that uh, my wife and I 
have talked about and taught, actually, uh, concerning the five love languages that uh, Dr. Gary Chapman uh, has presented. In fact, he's been on this program probably five times uh, in the past mm-hmm. concerning that book and uh, a number of others. So we're going to be talking about that. And, uh, uh, of course, the whole social media thing that is ter- ter- tyrannizing, actually, uh, our young people, whether they realize it or not, it's turning them into unsocial beings and uh, or anti-social beings in some respects. So we want to talk about that as well. And uh, I want to make your book available to all of us who uh, are in need. Uh, we have uh, no longer teenagers in our home uh, except for grandchildren. And uh, so this is going to be important for us as well. The book, Becoming Teen Parenting Machine, $16 on our website. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Today we have Teen Talk. We're talking about teenagers. We're talking about how to parent teenagers. And, of course, that's going to apply also to grandparents. Uh, Katie, uh, we have uh, 11 grand, excuse me, 10 grandchildren. And uh, it's, it's a challenge because many of them are teenagers. In fact, almost all of them now are teenagers except for one. So we're watching this progression, and we're seeing how their temperaments change, how their attitudes change, uh, how their choices change, uh, not always for the better. And, uh, you know, what do you do about it? Uh, we, as, as loving grandparents, want to do everything that we can to speak into their lives, to be available, uh, to make a difference there. And, of course, their parents want to, but sometimes their parents find themselves wringing their hands What's going on? You know, you brought up a really interesting thing at the beginning about social media and about these statistics of what our youth are dealing with. And in some ways, parenting is constant. The way, you know, parents raised their children years ago, the the core things are constant, whether it's love, protection, security, all of those Mm -hmm. things are the same. But it looks quite different given our high technological world and what our children are dealing with. And I think one of the biggest issues with our teens right now is they don't have a foundational home base. And and so what they end up doing is they look for this belonging outside of what really is important, and that is their faith and their family and their parents who have their best interest at heart. And whether it's um, you know social media and all these forces, we live in an information age where our, our youth are being flooded with information that is really not good and it's not correct and that they don't know that they don't have those critical thinking skills to say this is not this is not who i am and then also like i like i mentioned earlier a lot of the emphasis is being taken away from the nuclear family and so we have other organizations and systems that are coming in and and whether they're well-intentioned or not they're taking these kids away from their family values 
And in doing so, they've lost their compass. They've well, lost even Disney compass. is taking them away. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of indoctrinations that's coming on so many ends. And if parents are not incredibly intentional in being the number one voice for their children or giving their children a um, conduit to God to know how to create a relationship with their Father in Heaven, then these children are at risk for being lost. And the teenage years, one of the biggest things, and this is for every teenager, whether it's they grew up in this generation or generations past, they want to belong. They want to feel like they're loved and like people understand them. Well, to, so, to be loved and to belong, aren't those the two greatest uh, human needs? Exactly. And, and that's what kids, especially overtly, especially the teenager, where they don't know who they are, they're developing, they're changing, they're wondering who they are and what they're going to become. They need that safe base and that safe foundation to grow from and to spring from. They need those roots. And so I think what's happening, in my experience, is all these competing voices are coming in and, and lying to our children. And that's why my, my mission through my, my professional work is to strengthen that relationship so it is airtight between the parent and the teen, and then hopefully through the teenager's relationship with God, that they will have that be their base so that all the other decisions that they make in their life can originate from that point. And if they aren't sure, they'll go to their mother or to mother, father, scriptures, or a trusted mentor to say, I don't know what to do about this. Instruct me. Instead of getting on Instagram, putting it in and saying, what should I do about drug use? or underage drinking, or unprotected sex. All these things, we do not want our children learning these things from anyone else. Well, you know, uh, Katie, all of this becomes uh, triply complex because when I was a teenager and through, uh, you know, began in junior high school, 12, 13 years of age, and then moving forward, uh, first of all, uh, it was in 1956, 57, when I was uh, uh, in junior high school. Uh, that's when the transistor radio came out. And uh, the big deal then was uh, a four-transistor radio or a six-transistor radio. And then you also had to have enough money to be able to afford the, the six-transistor radio. You didn't fit in. So <laughs> just putting in perspective, compared that to the, to the cell phones today. Uh, but since that time, uh, and since 1969, when Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, ordained the uh, n- uh, No-Fault Divorce Act, since that time, almost every year, about a million children a year have been left virtual orphans. In other words, they did not have father or mother in the home, uh, both of them mm-hmm. in the home. And so that has made things far more complex, far more difficult. And we were told uh, that, well, it doesn't make any difference. As long as there's one parent and you love your child, that's fine. That's cool. Uh, They'll get over it. But then eventually we discover, no, they're not getting over it. In fact, it's multiplying the problems in their lives, the trust that they have or lack thereof. And uh, so it has created a complex overlay to everything else that is already troubling enough so that we have a massive fatherless uh, problem in the country. And it's not just, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, unwed pregnancies, it's divorce. Divorce is the number two cause of fatherlessness in the country. And fatherlessness is now said to be the number one social problem in the country out of which all others issue. So when we talk about this, uh, I think we have to be very careful that we don't uh, pretend that everybody is living in this wonderful two-parent home. It ain't so, even in the church. You're absolutely right. And something that you brought up, which was so true, is when when the no-fault divorce came in the 60s and early 70s, essentially it prioritizes the individual over the family unit. And someone can say, you know, this isn't working for me, and so by no fault I can step out of this. Exactly. It's going to affect everyone in the family. And um, and whether or not someone chooses to do that is their personal choice, but the consequences of that are are the consequences. You can't change it. It's a natural consequence. So you are going to have issues of fatherlessness in the home, which is devastating for these kids who do want a two-parent home and deserve a two-parent home. Yeah. And I agree with you that it is, an, it is a traumatic incident for these children. The, the hope that I have in that is regardless of if someone's dealing in that situation, whether by their own fault or the fault of someone else and they're a victim of it, um, I do believe that the, the organizations and villages like churches and those and communities can help to, and grandparents, can help to fill in some of those gaps. I always say, and this is something I say in my professional work all the time, we strive for the ideal. We know what the ideal is. The ideal Mm -hmm. is a loving two-parent home where both mom and dad are are God-fearing and they want the best for their children, but we recognize that the ideal is not attainable because we live in a mortal state, and that's part of our mortality is learning to live within the the non-ideal. And so we can still learn the ideal and desire the ideal and do our best to create an ideal situation with whatever we've been given to work with in our mortality. No question about it. You know, you mentioned a word, uh, in fact, several words, uh, the fear of the Lord or or God-fearing. And uh, Mm -hmm. I believe that this is one of the major factors that has created the problem, uh, the background for what we're experiencing today. Uh, not just with our teens, but at every level of society. Uh, it used to be that in this country, uh, the term a God-fearing man was the most common way that a man was referred to who could be trusted, whose word was his bond, who at least was, was uh, a believer in God, uh, whether or not he was a Christian. But uh, I have noted that over the past 30 to 40 years, the use of the term God-fearing man has almost been eliminated from American parlance. And uh, I think it's because we have virtually abandoned the concept of the fear of the Lord, even in God's house. And because of that, we have lost the authority. God's lost his authority because we don't uh, have that respect for him anymore. And therefore, our children and our grandchildren lose that respect for us because we're supposed to be acting under God's authority. So it's an echoing consequence that we're experiencing. Uh, the authority crisis is huge. I agree. And I think along with that is when we, when we are God-fearing and we recognize his authority, we also 
create this trust with him. It's, it's a beautiful thing because you have the fear on one side and you have this mercy on the other side too. Right. I know exactly. I know of God's power that if I do good, if I do, if I keep his commandments and obey his laws, mm-hmm. I know he will keep up his end of the bargain. Exactly. And I know if I don't, he will also, I'll have to be, um, I'll have to have those natural consequences. And I love that you said that the way we pattern, we pattern our parenting after our relationship with God. And something that teenagers really benefit from in the family and all family life benefits from is recognizing that if we can build that same type, type of trust and respect for those in our homes, then our teenagers believe us. It takes away a lot of the discipline issues because mm-hmm. just like I, the Lord doesn't have to punish me as much as he used to when I was a kid because I trust him so fully that I believe that if I'm going to do something, I already kind of know the outcome, and I get to make that choice of how I want to act, because I really do trust right. my Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, our children, if they can create that same trust with their Savior, but then also with their parents to know, my parents really love me, and they want the best for me, and when they're giving me a rule, it's a protection. It's a protection, and if I don't follow this rule, I understand the natural consequences that will come about. It helps to naturally take care of some of these behavioral and discipline issues that we have with our teenagers. And it comes from a place of desire, of trust, and of a mutual, like, almost like a covenant relationship like we have with the Lord, where our children have that with us, where they feel like, if I deliver on my end, I know my parents will deliver on their end, and I know mm. that God will deliver on That is so well. important. I and, and, of course, I highlighted in your book, trust is the foundation of every good relationship, and that begins with God himself. And that, by the way, I, I'm convinced, uh, Katie, that as we're sitting here on the near edge of the second coming, and we see all of these things happening in our troubled world, that what God desires most from us is trust. And trust is manifested in obedience. And, of course, we have that song that we used to sing a lot, Trust and Obey, where there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it's such a simple little thing, but I think we've lost the significance of it. The word obey has become the most hated word in the church, admitted by pastor after pastor on this program, by the way. And so trust is lost. We don't realize what we're doing uh, to the relationships with our children and with our uh, grandchildren because we ourselves have uh, basically under pulled the rug right out of, under from under trust. Exactly. And I think, too, like you say, it's so unfortunate that obedience and, and obeying has, has become such a buzzword because it's a it is the protection that we are missing in society. What we are missing, and as we see things start to fall apart, I believe it's because we've lost some of the protection of the Lord because we haven't been obedient. Mm-hmm. And it's just the natural consequences of us choosing not to. And hopefully, as we as we create and, and cultivate more trust in all of our relationships, especially with the Lord and then in our own families, that our our children will feel like they were protected. They were protected by mom and dad. And we've seen this as parents. When you have a child that you say, please do not engage in these acts, because once you do, I cannot protect you anymore. Mm. Like if they, if they break a law, if they break something, no matter my mom heart, if I want to go in and say to the school teacher, no, please don't do that to my son. If he has crossed a line, I cannot protect him. And even the school, there's can be times where the school can't protect him or the law right. can't protect exactly. him. Exactly. And I think it's so dangerous for us 
to minimize obedience and say, you know, it's all relative, whatever you want to do, because obedience, laws, and trust, all one of the most beautiful byproducts of that is protection. Yeah, there you the go. You know, you've articulated that so uh, so beautifully, and uh, bringing a package together, what we're attempting to do is frame the whole experience that we're dealing with with our, our young people, and then... Uh, kind of tying a package together that we can see the consequences of what we do, what we don't do, the attitudes of our hearts, and so on. If we want the attitudes of our children's hearts to be right with us, we need to make sure that our attitude toward God as our Father is right. And so we see the echoing consequences right along the line We're going to talk about some other very practical things here in the second half of the program, friends. The book, Becoming a Teen Parenting Machine, a step-by-step guide to transform your relationship with your teenager. $16 on our website, saveus.org, or call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. Today we're dealing with uh, the matter of parenting, teen parenting, with our special guest, Katie Wierig. And uh, Katie, one of the things that uh, came to my attention as we were uh, in, in the break there is that we, we talk about boundaries. Uh, everybody, that's, that's the popular term these days, boundaries. Uh, but then as you begin to unfold that in your book, you talk about rules and consequences of breaking those rules. And I was thinking about the implication of that, and the Bible actually says that the law was given to make sin sinful. In other words, to help people, human beings, understand what was pleasing or not pleasing to God What would bless them or not bless them, that's why the law was given. And uh, you could say, well, that's why God, God gave the law. That was his statement of boundaries for his people. This is how I want you to live. This is how I don't want you to live. And if you'll live the way I ask you to live, you're going to be blessed. If you don't, you're not going to be blessed. Uh, so how do we as parents then deal with our teenagers with regard to these boundaries? I think the biggest thing to remember when parenting teenagers, because they are getting older and they're wanting to exercise their own thoughts and rationale, is to include them in the conversation and make the biggest question why. So 
one thing that I do with my clients is we have what I call conversation cards where we have topics like phone and technology, dating, physical intimacy, family responsibilities, bullying, self-harm, finances, all of these topics that really parents could be sitting down preemptively before the child enters that stage. Bradley Foster once gave an great example of how a dad sat his son down at nine years old and said I was nine once and here's what I experienced when I was nine so you might experience it this this year at school and then he did that every year for his son to kind of give him a heads up Mm. well with that if you can take these conversation cards and sit down with your child for instance um like uh, can I send pictures to friends boyfriends girlfriends over text message if so (laughs) what types of pictures are okay that's something we didn't i would have never my mom would never had to have talked to me about when i grew up and now that is one of the biggest prevalent problems is kids who don't understand the repercussions of what kind of photos they're posting online and sending to each other i never would have thought we'd have to have these conversations but here we do but if we include, if, if me and my husband were to sit down my daughter and say, here's what you can and can't do, do it and trust us, she may or may not do it that based on how developed that, that relationship is between the two of us. Mm-hmm. But if we sit her down and say, why do you think it could be dangerous to get pictures out there that you don't want everyone to see? Or, or should you even be sending them in the first place? And why is that? As she explains the why, then we can backtrack and you do the why first. And what could actually happen in the future is, and then you say, okay, so what boundary do we want to keep us as far away from this event as possible? And if she decides that she doesn't want to cross this line, then we say, okay, now what will our family rule be surrounding phones? Well, maybe we decide that mom and dad, if she, if we pay for the phone, which is just what we do in our family, mom and dad always have to know the code and we have, can read any of their text messages or see any of their online activity at any random time. Whoa. And we know that. And so we do that. I know that might be severe for some families, but it's worked really well for our teenage children. No, I think it's great. That's accountability. Uh, I mean, even God looks down from heaven as our heavenly father. He sees what we do. He knows our thoughts and so on. Yes, and, and that way, my daughter has said multiple times, one, I have two daughters, has said that, you know, she does, feel, she'll ask herself before she sends a text message, would I be okay with mom and dad seeing it? Or conversely, because we've had this conversation, what if this text message I'm sending about a different friend happens to get somehow out there? Am I saying <laughs> something sweet or hurtful? Right. That could, if it possibly gets out or goes viral or something, would I be okay if other people saw it? And if you don't, and she tends to step back and stop. And we, this even mm-hmm. controls how she talks on, you know, about other people, whether it's gossip or sure. things. She, she filters a little bit more because she recognizes that very few things are, are truly private. So when you talk about boundaries, I think these conversation starters can be really helpful. But if you approach it initially with the why, let the child use their own, wherever they're out in their development, of their own rationale to ask, why would we not want you to? All right. Know, well, that, okay. Well, that being the case, then what do you do? Uh, what are the consequences for breaching those boundaries? How do you handle that? So that's something that I feel like the best thing to do is to decide if you are doing it preemptively and you're having these conversations with your child preemptively. The two of you can decide on a consequence. One of my sons, in particular, and this works for most clients. I would say ninety percent of clients do so much better. When they have know the consequence, they've decided on it. And so when that, that boundary has been breached, then you say, okay, you knew. 
it lost the phone privileges for a month. And they might whine and they might yell and they might cry, <laughs> but they knew. They knew that it was there. And and some kids are going to have a hard time because you can't foresee every type of boundary breach, you know? Sure. And so there may be times where they'll breach something and you might have to say, okay, you've done this. Here's the consequence I'm going to enact. And then you and I can talk later, you know, when we're not so emotional about what we'll do in the future. And, you you know, it might be worse or less or whatnot. But moving forward, mm-hmm. here on out, if this is crossed, here's what we're going to do. Because All right. How about, I, uh, how about asking them uh, on some of those uh, ones where you haven't actually set the boundary in a, in, uh, or the consequence in advance, saying, uh, now, what do you think should be the consequence here? Yeah, I love that. And I think whether it's done in advance or in the moment, I think often it can be done. The U.S. then, the consequence. And it's interesting because when you get down to the why, mm-hmm. so for instance, if you have a child that, let's say, cheated on a test, and the parent initially just knee-jerk reactions, how could you be so dumb, that's not our family rule, and just is so angry, if the parent takes a step back and says, why do you think you needed to cheat on the test? And then you get this why behind the kids, whether it's insecurity, self-esteem, laziness. We don't know because the parent just initially got in there and said, here's here's what I'm going to do to try to fix it without really knowing what they were trying to fix. Were they trying to fix insecurity and overscheduling issue? And so if you can get, if you can talk to the child about it, then once you get there, you can say, okay, the reason you cheated on this test is maybe because you're really insecure about your grades and you're having a really hard time feeling like it's a peer pressure issue. So what would be the appropriate consequence for cheating? Would it be making them feel even more insecure about their grades and and yelling at them and making them go to a resource class? Probably not. Probably the better consequence in that would be, would be figuring out ways to boost their academic self-esteem and yes, still giving a consequence, going and apologizing to the teacher privately, you know, taking whatever response they need there. But there are so many, most of the time, the behaviors are a symptom of a root problem. Okay, and the root problem, disease. the root problem from a biblical standpoint is the heart. The heart of the matter is always the heart. So yes. we can we can deal with behavior all we want, but if it's driven by the heart, just stopping the behavior isn't remedying the problem. Absolutely. And I like to say with my clients, you know, your kid is a tree and you come into to me or another counselor and you say, fix this leaf, this leaf, which whether it's, you know, discipline issues or they're defiant or any of these things, fix this leaf. And I say, well, I can do a few things. There's always little things you can do to fix the behaviors. But you're absolutely right. It's let's take a step back and let's go deep into the root. What is the reason for these behaviors? And often, and this is why I focus so much on the family relationship, often it can be handled in the home by creating a stronger, more secure, more faith-based home. Mm-hmm. A lot of these issues will start to resolve and the behavior issues will start to correct on their own as the parents put more positivity into their relationship with their kids more intentional parenting, more love, and, and less just immediately punishing behaviors. It's like chopping off the leaf that's bad, right? We just chop it off and we get rid of it. The bad leaf is going to grow back in. It's just Exactly, because it's coming from a root that's diseased or sinful, and that's why the, it's, it's always coming from the heart. And uh, I think one of the problems that parents have, and Christian parents as well, is we're more focused on behavior or 
actions than we are on attitudes. But the Bible tells us that the attitudes are every bit as important. In fact, the actions are flowing from our attitudes. If we don't deal with the attitudes, then all we're doing is creating an artificial system that ultimately is not going to fulfill its purpose in our children growing into God-fearing and loving people. Absolutely, and I think the biggest struggle that we have with this as parents, and I can say this because I'm in the thick of it, is these behavior issues, we want a quick fix. It is very embarrassing and hard as a parent to have a child who is misbehaving or who is not doing well in school or who's Mm -hmm. being mean. And so we go and we want this quick fix to say, fix this behavior, fix this leaf, because I can't have people speak for free in this current state. But we have to recognize that life is about growth. Mortality is about always, always improving. We learned from Jesus Christ, he gave people space to change, recognizing that change would happen over time. So as we parent our children, often the reason we need a reaction and punish so severely is not because that's the best thing for the child, but because we're worried about what the tree looks like. And we're worried about, is my kid going to lose opportunities because of this? And if we are focusing on the root, the root will take time to be to be cultivated and fostered. And maybe and we're so not interested in giving that kind of time. Maybe we're I, I, more interested yes. for our pride purposes as a parent than external appearances than they we are in the final heart change. Yes, of our child. And so we have to be willing to also be patient and recognize that change in the Lord and change in relationships does take time but those mm. little changes that happen it will take it might you might have a winter you may have a winter where that tree it seems like oh my gosh my kid is lost but as you as you water it and as you cultivate it and as you give it that attention spring will come and you will start to see these behavior changes but there it requires patience on the uh, and humility like you said it's the opposite of pride it's this humility and this meekness and recognizing that it's not about just changing the behavior. We're changing hearts. We're in the business of changing hearts and cultivating exactly. people. And that will take time and patience. All right, friends. Katie Wierig with her wonderful book, Becoming a Teen Parenting Machine, a guide to transform your relationship with your, ke- your teenager. $16. We'll put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. You can call us 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us at Save America Ministries. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. What is your child's love language? 
Maybe you're not familiar with that terminology. Dr. Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. In fact, he's written a number of books that uh, apply that particular uh, teaching and understanding, and it's very helpful. Uh, It's not just psychologizing. It's about living. It's about understanding one another. It's about understanding our children because they're all different. They're all different, like a snowflake. They're all different. Uh, I'm not suggesting your children are snowflakes in the in the popular uh, term these days, which is quite uh, pejorative, but uh, they're different. And uh, these five love languages, uh, my wife and I have found to be very helpful to understand, uh, together with the motivational gifts that uh, we have in our family. And uh, so... Run us through quickly, uh, Katie, these five love languages, will you? Yeah, so the the five love languages are, um, in no particular order, touch, mm-hmm. service, quality time, gifts, and words of affirmation. Mm-hmm. So what's your love so, language? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I give love in a different way than I receive it. I, um, I give love through touch and service, mm-hmm. and I receive love most through gifts and service. Hmm. Interesting. Does your yeah. husband know that? <laughs> yes. It's, it's I, I overanalyze everything, believe me, he knows. And we, we talk about it often in our family. It's actually a really fun discussion because it's been so fun to see our children evolve into discovering for themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how they give and how they receive. And um, it's really beautiful because it helps us to recognize how much we really do love each other, even though we may not always, it, had we not had these words in this communication tool, we maybe wouldn't have noticed. Well, the significance of this, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, is that if you understand what somebody else's love language is, It will make a difference how you treat them, how you respond to them. What is it that moves them? What is it that motivates uh, their mind and heart? What is it that causes them to feel blessed? What is it that causes them to feel uh, loved and accepted? And uh, when you begin to understand those things, uh, it helps to alleviate a lot of uh, false understanding. Well, of course I love you. I did this. Well, that's not my love language. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's a danger because we as parents could never, I mean, we get offended and would be so frustrated if after all of this time and sacrifice and energy we put towards our kids for the 18 years they're in our home or even more and thought, how did you not know that I did everything I did for you and I loved you? And still children come out of loving homes saying, oh, my mom and dad, you know, didn't do this for me or this for me. And it's just tragic because you know that the parent felt it, but the child just for some reason didn't receive it. Right. And so even though it can oftentimes feel like, oh, is that placating or spoiling the child to, to give them exactly what they want? If you're going to put this much time and energy into parenting, it will be so much more effective if the child feels wholly and completely loved by their parents. And sometimes that comes from a parent just having to adjust a little bit how they do things in the home. All right. You've got five kids. And uh, uh, give us your response to a situation where uh, you treat every one of your children exactly the same in a given set of circumstances. 
do they all receive or understand it the same way? Oh, heavens no. And, and, <laughs> and all parents can tell you that. All of us grown individuals, too. I have, I'm one of six. And each of us perceived our childhood so differently. And what worked for some of us didn't work for others of us. And it's just interesting how that works. Well, we're just I discovering think- that after 40 years now. Yes. And I think, I think we put so much, you know, there's this age old question of nature versus nurture. And uh-huh. that is so oversimplified in the sense that even a nurturing home has so many additional factors to it that could potentially, you know, make or break a situation. And so not, we're not trying to necessarily complicate the home life for parents by encouraging them to learn their child's love language as much as saying more effective. Like I said, the energy output is there. The question is, is the energy output that you're giving effectively doing its job, or is it just kind of getting put out there and then, you know, floating away with osmosis? We need it to actually direct so the child can feel it. There is a generational research, uh, and I remember when I was in, in college, uh, back in 1963, 64, 65, 66, and so on, I, I remember... Uh, in the psychology class, I'm talking about uh, the studies that have been done with regard to touch, uh, babies that had been touched or not touched, children that have been touched or not touched. And you focus on that in, in your book, this matter of uh, a child needing touch. On the other hand, uh, it seems, uh, it often seems that a teenager doesn't want to be touched. Don't touch me, or shrinking away from a touch. Uh, uh, what do you say to that? You're exactly right in that touch is so vital and that it is hard. And teenagers are probably, them and the elderly are probably the least touched demographic of individuals. It's mm-hmm. devastating because especially our teenagers are still developing brains. And I won't get too scientific, but there's multiple hormones that are involved with that, including oxytocin, which is the comfort-soothing drug, which combats cortisol, which is your stress drug. So when you give someone a five-second, eight-second hug, it releases these stress-relieving hormones into their system. So our teenagers really do need the touch, and that can be a massive barrier. And it's something we talk about often in different ways that you can initiate touch to a child that might be resistant. So some of those is padding. Just like a, a gentle, you know, rub or pat on the arm as you walk by them. You know, we do that to strangers. You do that to acquaintances in the work office. Start doing little things like that with your teenager. Sit next to them and tickle their back or play with their hair. And if they say, I don't want to be touched, you can even tell them, I really want to feel close to you right now. Can I just sit close to you? And just see if you can start to break open yeah. that barrier. And it, amazingly, you will see that some kids who their love language is touch, they just can't really express it during their teenage years once you open that door those kids become almost clingy and it can be a little annoying in the moment i've had many parents say i don't know why my 15 year old daughter is like wanting to sit by me and hold my hand again and just snuggle me all the time and it's kind of annoying but what that's a sign of is that she needs touch and it will get better she'll learn how to regulate it Mm -hmm. but that is a way for her to manage her stress and also to feel safe, and but, so we as parents have to give into that a little bit. All right, well, Katie, it's not just for those whose love language is touch. Uh, everyone right. needs to be touched, and, uh, you know, with young men, 
that's a, a more difficult thing because they're trying to grow into manhood and they have this idea that, uh, you know, touch isn't a good thing and touch is a uh, kind of a female kind of a thing. But I'll tell mm-hmm. you, I, I'm just going to give you my own testimony here. Over many years, uh, with my daughters growing up, I always made sure that that uh, we touched them. When I spent uh, time with them in the evening, coming home from law practice, after dinner, we'd sit with them, uh, sharing the Word of God with them, and I always put my arms around them. I wanted mm-hmm. them to feel God's touch through my touch as their father. And uh, when our grandchildren began to come along, uh, even with uh, our young men, always, always, always found a way to uh, touch, in a good way, to touch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do that even to this day when they're in their 20s. And uh, it it is so important. And we think about that song, Katie. Uh, He touched me. He touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Why is it that we can sing a song like that about God and don't get the message when it comes to our kids? I think, unfortunately, the world we live in has made us a little scared of, of touching each other. Because of the narrative, you know, we, we have so much information about about people abusing each other and hurting each other. And so even healthy mentors and church leaders feel nervous to give a side hug to a struggling youth, which that is exactly what they need. And so I think we need to make sure we're normalizing healthy and non-sexual touch in the home that is, that is the way to connect with your child. And as you were saying, like, you know, it can be hard. Um, another one I recommend if it's really awkward is just like dance. Like even dance parties where you can even hold hands and just dance with your kids, even though they might, you know, roll their eyes. Any chance you can get to just make that connection, it'll start to get easier. And and it and we we as parents shouldn't be scared and shy away if the world tells us, you know, oh, you know, you can't hug your teenage son as a mom because it's creepy or whatever they want to say. We know better. We yeah, know we know better. Touch people to heal them. He, we know how important it is. And we know what what we need to do to be good parents. And so that's something where we kind of have to be crusaders and unfortunately like reinvented pioneers in this. Yeah. Say, no, we're bringing back normalizing parent and child touch all the way through adulthood, even through adulthood. Like you say, you put your arms around your adult children. That's what we all need. We all need yeah. positive touch. Yeah, and so does a wife and a husband. So <laughs> It go, exactly. What exactly. goes around comes around, and uh, all of this is very important. We need God's touch. Uh, we need our, the touch from one another. Uh, this is so, so important. Becoming a teen parenting machine. Well, I don't know if you can become a machine because, well, but machines break down, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Katie Wirg with her book, Teen Parenting Machine, uh, a step-by-step guide to transform your relationships with your teenagers. So many things in, in this book that we haven't been able to cover, uh, but you will when you get the book. And it's not that difficult. Uh, it's an easy book to read. Uh, $16 will put it in your hands. We need all the help we can get. It's on our website, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. 
or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling, and we'll put the book in your hands. Also want to urge you to become a partner with us as day after day. You know what we're really doing today? We're discipling for destiny. This is part of Christian discipleship. It really is. And uh, if we really have a hope of preparing our children uh, to to handle the, the troubles of the end of the age here, we've got to start at the foundation. If the foundations aren't right, then whatever we think we're building upon them is going to crash and burn when the struggles come. It just is. So now's the time to kind of get a handle on these things. Uh, we're not we're not mechanics actually to make it. We, we can't guarantee that all of these things are going to work precisely because we're all human beings. It doesn't work that way with you, and it doesn't work that way with your kid. On the other hand, there are basic principles that we're trying to guide uh, with you here so that our, our young people can be uh, God-fearing, God-loving, God-trusting, because they can trust the love of their mom, their dad, and... Uh, the authority that mom and dad has so that they can be prepared when they grow up and are severed from the covering of mom and dad to truly put that trust and confidence in God as their father. So, uh, Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, You're a blessing, sister. Thank you so much, Jack, and God bless you and bless all your listeners who are strengthening their families throughout our nation. Thank you so much. Now, your husband is a lawyer. What kind of law practice is he in? So he he does uh, corporate and tax law. Ah, okay. So he's going to keep you out of the uh, IRS's clutches. Okay, that's good to know. Yes, so far, so good. So So far. far, Well, that's a good thing because you live not far from the IRS headquarters in Ogden, Utah. So uh, (laughs) pass along my blessings from two legal beagles here together. Thanks so much. God bless. Be a blessing, my friends. And remember, our teens are adults in the making. They really are. They're adults in the making. It doesn't seem like it sometimes, but they are. So let's be faithful. Let's be adults when we deal with them and don't act like teenagers when we're dealing with troubled teens. God bless. Be a blessing. been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.